Says I am the greatest player of them all. Puts his bat on his shoulder and he tosses up his ball. And the ball goes up and the ball comes down. Swings his bat all the way around. The world's so still you can hear the sound. The baseball to the ground. Now the little boy doesn't say a word. Picks up his ball. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-hosts and stars of this show, Mark Wiley and Will George. This is a day at the yard. Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, episode 300 on the network. So a milestone episode for us. No two guys better to do it than, than Mark and Will. We've got a great show in store for you today. If you could have heard the pre-show banter, I uh, wish you guys would have warmed up like we did today because we're going to hit the ground running. Before we introduce Mark and Will and bring them on, just want to thank our 50,000-plus subscribers. 74 countries are going to get a treat again today. Grassroots to MLB front offices. Uh, we, we do these shows for you. So make sure that after this show, you give these guys five stars, write some nice comments underneath it, because just like in baseball, we battle the analytics of the podcast world uh, like they're doing in MLB right now. We also want to thank iHeartRadio for taking a shot on us and giving us a cup of coffee in the bigs, and we want to stay there. So make sure whatever your streaming devices, stay with it, but make sure you also stream on iHeart so we can show them the loyal support we have with our fan base out there. And with that, uh, Two best guys in baseball I've ever met, uh, not just baseball guys, but but men in general. I want to bring on Mark Wiley, Will George. Guys, welcome back to your show. Great to be back, guys. Thanks, Dave. Nice uh, music selection. Yeah. Kenny Rogers awesome. is one of my favorites. I was lucky enough to see him in concert one time. I had to borrow the 8-track from my parents. They used to put that on all, <laughs> all the time. Kids have no idea what 8 In fact, my kids don't know what DVDs or CDs are, but... They had that eight-track playing nonstop. I think it was the only one they had. So I know every Kenny Rogers song by heart. And uh, I put that one up. I know we're going to talk a little bit about Brooks Robinson today. I don't want to skip around because we've got some great stuff to do. But I put a little Brooks Robinson story on Facebook yesterday and had that music to it. I thought that was appropriate uh, to, to celebrate Brooks. And I'll share that story later in the show when we get to him. I ruined the punchline by calling it the Brooks Robinson story, so people will know the ending. But uh, with that, well, well, I don't know. I know we've got a we've got a great Mark does a wonderful job of, of uh, kind of prepping the show for us and, and great notes. But uh, you were sharing a story about Greg Maddox, and I think it kind of opens up to to what we want to talk about today. A video you posted on Facebook with Maddox about Barry Bonds. Um, yeah, it, it was it was just his complete honesty of common sense. He said. I'm pitching against the Giants. I, you know, he's the easiest guy in the lineup to face. So if it's a if it's a crucial situation, I'm just going to walk him because he's going to do damage. If not, you know, if I have to pitch to him, I'm going to do the best I can. But you know, there's plenty of places to go to hear this, folks, to get my 27 outs because that was the mindset of Greg Maddox when he got the ball. And if that was one of our modern day starters that were in his all-star form, they would go, you know, because I have 15 to 18 outs that I'm going to get tonight. Yeah, max, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, uh, but that was the beauty of the game back then is that the at the, the horses were horses. They, they finished what they started. Yeah. Well, Mark, I'll turn it back over to you. Where, where did you want to get started today? 
Yeah, I wanted to, you know, I was really excited to see uh, the Orioles celebrating yesterday. Um, they've won 100, over 100 games now, and they're, uh, you know, I, Will and I were both part of the Orioles organization, me as a, as a coach and manager, um, Will as a player, and, uh, you know, actually I played one year in AAA before I got on the, off the field with the Orioles and had such an appreciation at the time for during that period, they had had like 12 years in a row where they had the best record in all of baseball. Um, many Hall of Famers, many great players, uh, great team. There was always a discussion about the Oriole way of doing things, uh, which really came from guys like like uh, Cal Ripken Sr. and some of the other managers in the minor leagues, the Orioles, uh, doing things the right way, practicing the right way. and you know, it's it's really great now to see them come back and do the things that that uh, we always hoped to. When I coached there, we didn't quite ha- we hadn't got there yet. And uh, I know a couple years ago, I was watching our Double A team with the Rockies in Hartford, and and the Orioles Double A team came in. I see all these unbelievable prospects. I I texted Daryl Darren Holmes who I knew was the bullpen coach of the Orioles. I said, if you can hang on for a couple years, you got some real horses coming. And uh, I was so happy that I was able to text him after they won it and congratulate him and tell him, I told you it took a couple years, but they got there. And uh, it's not hard to see. They did a great job drafting players. They had, they took advantage of, the fact they had high picks and not everybody does. Some people pick the wrong guys. They pick the right guys. And so you could speak a little bit out to Will because you're a little bit more connected yeah, to the scouting you know, part. You know, they got them right. They, they took uh, very, very talented, high character makeup guys with those first or second picks in the draft, those four or five years that they got to. And they got them right. Um, from what I understand, Mike Elias was, was very big on the character of the players. And I think that that's where they've really, really hit big. When you look at the, the level of talent that's out on the field and, you know, he, I heard a good interview with him. He, he was very grateful what he inherited in Grayson Rodriguez and Santander and Hayes and Mullins, some of those guys who the previous people had picked and, they continued to develop those guys and get them to where they are now. And that's why that's a very, very talented young team. How uh, tempting is it to fall into that talent trap where you ignore character? Do you uh, see that a lot out there? Yeah. I, you, you know, I think that uh, you, you have to do your homework. Um, you know, one of the things I think that the kids now, because of how uh, media savvy they are, um, they all have representation. They all say the right thing. So you really have to watch, are the, are the actions meeting the words? You know, a lot of these kids, when you talk to them, you know, go, oh, wow, he's a really sharp kid. Then you watch them play, and they don't play hard. You know, when we talk about the Phillies, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, some of my observations there with why that's such a good chemistry team right now. But, you know, it, you know, it's symbolism over substance, which I read in a book back in the 90s, which is so true. We live in a society of symbolism as 
as opposed to the substance. Do what you're actually saying you're going to do. Now you're a person of true character. You just define social media for everybody. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, they, you know, I was really lucky. I'm really happy for the staff because I have connections with a lot of those guys. Uh, Not only Brandon Hyde, who I was with the Marlins with Tim Cousins and Freddie Gonzalez. I was his pitching coach with the Marlins and Anthony Sanders um, with the Rockies with me. And, uh, and then of course, uh, like I said, uh, Darren Holmes, uh, who was with the Rockies and then, Ebo, who was the uh, trainer, he was there. He was a trainer when I was the pitching coach there with the Orioles. So, I had, you know, I had, I'm so happy for all those guys. And uh, I watch the players. I watch their approach at the plate. I watch the way they handle themselves. Um, they really very, very professional. Yeah. They're very different than other teams. I, I noticed it about the midway point. I caught them just by chance on TV. And where a lot of these teams, they do not have a two-strike approach. They're swinging from their rear ends. Um, they're trying to dead pull balls, uh, hit them as far as they can. The Orioles hitters, young hitters too, that are that are you know Gunnar Henderson, uh, Audley Rushman. Um, they were up there moving the ball around. You could see a you could see a two-strike. You could you could see an approach to the at bat. Everybody wasn't the same, but you could you could see that they had uh, when they stepped up to the plate, they had a mindset of what they were trying to get done, and uh, it, it was fun to watch. Yeah, there's no doubt. And the other kid I forgot to mention, Mountcastle's a big, big impact in the middle of that order, driving in runs. And he's a guy that uses the whole field. And one of the things that, you know, they they cut back on their strikeouts this year. They put the ball in play. As old-fashioned as they say that is, it still helps a team keep, keep an inning alive by keeping the ball in play. When you strike out, you know, not a whole lot of things can happen on a strikeout. You know, they. I don't know all their pitchers, but I, I, I did see Gonzalez. I've seen Hill. I've seen some of their guys in the minor leagues. And, you know, they've got the ability to be dominant. And uh, Gonzalez, I think. Rodriguez. Uh, I mean, Rodriguez. I'm sorry. Rodriguez. Uh, you know, he's got a chance of winning a Cy Young or two. Yeah. Um, yeah. He has that kind of strength and that kind of durability and that kind of pitches and yeah um and it's just starting to flow and you know i think people really don't know these people's ne- the players names on the orioles yet but after the playoffs this year you're going to start you're going to get start to get some household names yeah and, they, uh, you know you know uh, rushman's probably the first one to break out with a household name but uh, because everybody in baseball talks about him and it's so important to have a great catcher and when he can hit too it's special but uh, they're going to have some got recognizable players. Oh no! And they're you know they just won the international league last night, and Jackson Holiday was the from last year's draft was the minor league player of the year, and on that team in AAA at the end of the season. So, you know, uh, you know they, they they've done a great job. You tip your hat to people that do their job well, and they've done that. You know, they acquired a kid named Kyle Bradish from the Angels that. They got for uh, the uh, the right-handed right-handed pitcher that was the number one overall pick years ago. Uh, the kid out of Oklahoma, I slipping my mind, but they got they traded. Oh, him. I know who you mean. Yeah, uh, Dylan Bundy. Bundy, you know, who you know who was a great-looking young prospect. He was a pretty good big league pitcher, but they got this kid Bradish. Mark, he's got plus plus stuff. They got Flaherty in, at the trade deadline, who's got really good stuff. 
they did some nice things to to, to get Kyle Gibson going, who's a tr- true professional bottom end of the rotation. And Mike Elias and his staff have done a great job of claiming relievers and getting them right to pitch at the end of the game with big arms. And they've done a really good job with that, with the with the Cano kid and with Batista, who unfortunately got hurt, but they certainly have some really good arms. They acquired the kid from Oakland, the Asian pitcher that's uh, got a really big arm with a big, big time split as well. So, you know, they're going to be fun to watch. You know, there's some young fun teams that are fun to watch right now. Yeah, it's going to, yeah, there's some, there's some, uh, some quality pitchers out there. Um, there's some some guys that should be special. It's nice to see them. I like it. Obviously, I'm a guy that likes it when they go deep in the game, like uh, uh, like uh, Rodriguez did the other day, and some of these top prospects. You you like them to see them go deeper in the game because they have the ability to do it. Just like we've talked about on other podcasts, you know, not everybody's built the same. Hey, some guys are very good if they can go five innings and do a decent job. But there's guys you got to count on that can go seven or eight, and and they 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 just not recognized as much in the big leagues uh, by staffs and front offices that I think they should be. You know, Mark, his his coming out for me was the big series against Tampa about three weeks ago, mm-hmm. and Baltimore lost the first two games, and he was uh, he was pitching the Saturday night game, and he went out through eight shutout innings and struck out. 11 guys with two walks and uh that's a true number one that's yeah i watched that i watched that game and i was so was, excited for that him. was the night you texted me and you said holy crap this rodriguez is going to win a cy young and i said yep what a freaking you know, game. i mean it was nice to see the kid i saw in double a who i projected to be that kind of guy and that's a whole other thing you said it seen it too will because we don't know what the development process is in every right. organization. And, uh, you know, so you, you see a prospect, but sometimes they never show up or they are mediocre when they get there. And you're going, God, did I miss on that guy? You know, I thought he was going to be really good. Well, they're obviously doing some things right. And I remember one of the things they did right that stood out to me in double A is they made him throw his change up. Yep. They made him throw a change. This guy had dominant stuff. He could have just dominated any team in double A with a fastball and his breaking ball. But they made him, and Rushman was his catcher. Yep. And they must have coached Rushman because they weren't sending signs in from the bench. Rushman was calling the game, and he mixed in changes at the right times and got him confidence. And then I see him pitching with the other day, and he's dropping change-ups on guys yeah. mixed with all that other stuff. That's why he's going to be so special. And They've yep. done such a great job developing the pitches, yep. the pitchers. With, with the evaluation of this, the prospects, uh, you know, I know you guys have both have experience scouting. Where, where does your influence start and stop? Obviously, you have to go out there and beat the bushes and find these guys. Uh, sh- share a little bit about the makeup, because I think that's something that's often missed with prospects. You hear about the numbers, you hear, especially now, you hear about uh, all the measurables except the makeup. Um, to talk to those two points, the makeup, and then where does your responsibility start and stop? And you, you mentioned it, Mark, the influence of player development. I mean, that's it's an influence as to how well your prediction and projection Well, turns. there's always been battles between the scouting departments and the player development. There's not supposed to be, but you know, think about it. If you go to bat to draft a guy 
and he comes into an organization and he's not not developing at what you thought he was going to be, you 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 know you're not going to blame yourself. You're going to blame the guys you turned it turned them over to. Um, and that's where the makeup comes in. You know, if if we all are on page on the right page with the makeup, usually that stuff takes care of itself. You know, the makeup, and this is where scouts, amateur scouts, they really have to do their homework. Once they identify a guy as a guy, you know, they've, you know, they got to do in the wintertime, go see him play basketball on the high school basketball team or football. They got to go watch the guy over. When this guy's going to be a high priority player, you want to see how he reacts to losing. You want to see how he reacts to his teammates, the other team, uh, through adversity as well as doing really well as he got a kind of guy that leans toward having a big head and thinking he's better than everybody else or special and showing it. Or is he a humble guy with, with great character and, and lifts up his teammates. The only way you can see that is going to see those guys because you can't scout that in a game in one game. You got to see the guy in a lot. And then you've got to interview people you trust that have known the kid or seen the kid for a long time. I think that sometimes in the analytics world, that's one of the biggest things we're missing. Right. You know, you, uh, for me, you know, you create the right culture. Um, I went from being a pitching coach to being an area scout. And I sat in some heated meetings with the, the expansion Florida Marlins where People were arguing back and forth over things, and there was healthy discussions that we had. Well, you know, when I signed him, he could do that. Well, he's not doing that now. But, you know, one of the points that I stood up and made in the meeting, I said, guys, I go, I've done both now. And they're not easy jobs, and there's no exact science to this. Um, Every kid comes in, and he's the big fish in a small sea. And now he's in a big ocean and sometimes he loses confidence. Um, That's why we got to get the makeup right, that you find a kid that has the right self-esteem and confidence to go and has the drive to make himself better and the intelligence to self-evaluate and continually get better. You know, and, and like Mark said, all that comes by doing your homework and working hard and having good conversation. You know, good conversation shouldn't cause people to get fired, and it does now. When you go into a room and you disagree with somebody, and all of a sudden now guys are getting fired because, well, he's a troublemaker. No, he's not a troublemaker. He's making a good point. Let's talk about it and get it right. Yeah, such as well, our you right? You can't, you can't question. I, I've got a question quick, and this is a little bit facetious in nature, but I just want to make sure I don't get any – text messages or DMs from the liberal arts crews out there that follow the show just for them. There is no analytic formula for makeup, correct? None. Okay. Thank you. None. <laughs> no, there's no makeup for that. I mean, no analytic for that. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what uh, Tom Giordano used to do, which I don't know how many organizations did it. I thought it was a really good exercise. When I was managing the minor leagues, when you're coaching in the minor leagues, with the Orioles at the time, he would have us evaluate and put pref lists of the league we were in on all the players in the league, not only our own team, but for the league, the best position players all the way down, the best pitching all the way down, and then intermingle them and then pref list yours out with position play, the best position players and pitchers um, all on one sheet. So you've turned three sheets in. And I think that was Tom's way 
of seeing how his field staff was evaluating players. Then he could compare that to what his scouts saw. Right. No. And then he could say, this is, this guy must really be good. They all got his pre- up the prep list. No, you know, this guy, they all like this guy, you know, which I thought was important. And he used to also said, I want you to scout the other organization's staff. Right. If you see a particular manager or coach or something that you think is really good, you add him to the bottom of the list as staff recommendations. He, because those guys become available, he wanted to know something about them. And he yeah. says, oh, guy, Mark said this guy's a terrific guy, terrific coach. He wanted to know that so he'd have a little bit of uh, impact on his decision-making. So, you know, uh, David Dombrowski was big with that um, when I – got into just doing professional scouting. I had the Eastern League and the International League, and I did our organization as my coverage. And um, he always wanted to know who we thought was a good pitching coach, who was a good hitting coach, who was a good manager. And, you know, it's, you know, I always felt good because I identified some guys who ended up being big league managers, uh, Trey Hillman, guys like that, uh, that were – really hardworking every day. Mike Quaddy, who got some time in the big leagues, uh, uh, just a bunch of guys. Uh, Jim Tracy uh, was a young double-A manager at the time. You know, guys who were good at their job and uh, had a good gut during the game that you watched them manage the game. You watched how they interacted with their players, which was so important to realize how important all that is. Well, you know, as you said, Will – Back in the day, you know, you didn't lose your mind when somebody didn't agree, agree with you. Oh, yeah. You know, exactly. you, you, it was a discussion. Then you go out have a beer. You know, um, nobody took it personal, especially if you and if you had a better argument than the other guy. A lot of time the guy go, yeah, you're probably right. I, I was really tough on that. But you were, I'll never forget. Um, again, Giordano used to have scouting scouts come down to instructional league. Yep. And he'd have them evaluate our players, our own players, and instructionally. Yep. Then we'd have a roundtable discussion of what the scouts saw with the players that we were developing, yeah. right? And I, I remember, like it was yesterday, one of the scouts got got on the subject of pitching inside, and he said, this guy doesn't have enough fastball to pitch inside. And uh, I let him talk, and he kept going. He says, yeah, he, you know, this guy can't be a guy that – jams people because he doesn't have a good enough fastball is going on. So I waited till he finished. And then I said, can I say something? And they said, sure. And so I told him, I said, listen, it's all how you get there. Right. You know, I said, you get through, I said, Scotty McGregor jams guys. He throws 83 miles an hour. 83 world you know? series. How many times did he jam Mike Schmidt and lose Exactly. Exactly. And, in and Moyer and guys like that did it yeah. years later. Yeah. And, and I, and I said, it matters how you set the guy up. It doesn't matter how hard you throw. And I finally, I think I turned that guy around by talking to him and explaining it to him. And those are the things, honestly, that scouts have to uh, understand in order to make their good selections because then they get become better scouts. You know, Mark, and, that was, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned that. Uh, how many times as coaches, you and I through BP every day, uh, I was with Kenny Bullock those three years, and he ended up having Tommy John. So I would throw an hour plus early BP every day. Um, 
how many guys I could jam at 65 miles per hour when I got pissed off when they were taking pitches. <laughs> and I had thrown about 3,000 pitches in August one day and guys taking cock shots and I'm going, swing the bat. And, you know, I'd subtract a little bit and then I'd throw a four-seamer <laughs> on their hands and, and jam the crap out of them. And they would go, oh, whoa, what are you doing? I go, well, swing the bat. Let's go. It's BP. Yeah. Now get your rhythm going. You know, yeah, we yeah. knew that from pitching and throwing BP that if we change speeds, we could jam somebody at 65 miles per hour. Yeah, that was funny. I, I remember uh, I <laughs> this is kind of funny, but I, I threw batting practice the All-Star game when, when we were the staff for the All-Star game in uh, in it was in Colorado, actually. I guess it was 1998. And uh, Damon Easley was a playing for the, he made the all-star yeah. team and he was with the Detroit Tigers and he was a really good hitter. He was killing at the first half of the season. And uh, because I was throwing batting practice, I decided I would, you know, I would let them just crush balls. Yeah. But then I'd kind of go to some areas that I thought might give them problems. Yeah. Just to get a visual <laughs> on these guys, which I could never do during the season. Oh Yeah. And I found out where his hole was. Ah, that's great. And so we like killed him the second half and it all came from the BP right. that I threw. And uh, oh, there yeah. were other guys too on that all-star team that, you know, you experiment, you see, oh man, God, does he like the ball there? Wow. Yeah. You know, he can be, you know, quick bat. It's his easy route. Uh, you don't get that opportunity to do very often. So I had no. to take advantage of that. No, yeah, you're right. You know, I kind of knew where all of our kids' holes were. You know, never would tell them because I didn't coach against them. But, boy, that's a sneaky uh, deal right there. Good well, job. you know, it's funny because uh, I used to kind of check the intelligence of my pitchers. Right. I would ask my starting pitchers to evaluate our hitters. And I could tell all the pitchers that I had that were – that were clue, clued in on even watching their own teammates. They'd say, well, this is what I would do with him. This is what I would do with him. He would never get a hit off me. I used to laugh. Right. And he was talking about his own teammate. He says, I can't believe they don't do this to him. Right. He says, but they don't. He says, but if I ever pitch against him, that's what I would do. You know, and I go, okay, good, man. You're evaluating our hitters. You're at their hitters. You're in the mode of evaluating when you're not just sitting on the bench you know, eating sunflower seeds, you're actually evaluating things. Eating sunflower seeds, watching an iPad. Uh, well, let's 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 jump let's jump to the uh, the tremendous player and person that just passed away in Brooks yeah. Robinson with the Orioles. Um, I know we both all got some little stories about him and stuff, yeah. but you know, um, yeah, Brooks was always around when I was in big league camp as a, I used to help out when I was a pitching coach and manager in the minor leagues. I used to help out in big leagues. Like training. Brooks here. was always around and he was such a nice man, such a gentleman. And then, well, why don't we transition over to Brooks Robinson? Um, you know, we lost Brooks uh, this week. Um, one of the great baseball players, but also a better man. Um, a, there's not a better character person, I don't think, on this earth. Uh, Brooks was always special to me when I first started be becoming a when I was a manager and coach in the minor leagues. I used to help out with the major league team in spring training, and then in 1987, I became the big league pitching coach. And 
when I got to the, and I was in the big leagues and, and the first week I was there and in the locker room, Brooks was there and he was congratulating me on becoming the pitching coach. And we started discussing baseball and history and stuff. And I don't know how it came up, but the uh, Norman Rockwell painting of him came up and I started telling him how great a picture that was. And I loved him signing the autograph for the kid. And he told me all the stories of how, how it was contracted to be made by the Rawlings company or the company that controlled Rawlings at the time. And that's why they had all the Rawlings stuff on his shoes and on his glove and everything. And uh, I said, boy, I love that picture. He says, would you like to have one? I said, yeah, are you kidding me? And he goes, I've got some in my garage. I'll bring you a lithograph tomorrow and I'll sign it for you. And to this day, it's hanging in my office and, uh, and it's a special, it's one of my most special possessions on my office wall. Um, and one of the reasons it was my first big league coaching job and he signed it and said, I know you'll be, you'll have a long career. And well, you know, 40 some years later, um, uh, I'm glad that he was, he was not wrong, but, uh, he was such a positive guy and a guy that, that it was like, like many of the guys, which I'll discuss a little bit later on the podcast today. He, uh, he was humble, very humble. He never thought he was any better than anybody else. He always had time for autographs. He, he, uh, he treated everybody that they were special. Um, and he never talked down to anyone. And, uh, that's special for somebody that comes in that idolized him, uh, watching him on television in the world series and stuff as a kid, and then being in contact with him and then him giving me a painting. I mean, it was so cool. And, uh, but I mean, Brooks is just special. Yeah. I, um, I guess my, my Brooks thing is, uh, you know, he passed away this week and, you know, our friend Kevin Kiernan wrote a tremendous article, you know, tributing, uh, Brooks and Norman Rockwell, two of my favorite things that, uh, you know, point to a really happy memories in my childhood, you know, so. Uh, and I, I live here in Delmarva now, and I've made a lot of friends that idolized him and grew up as huge fans of his who texted me. And I've shared some stories, and my story is I signed in 1977 and born and raised in the Oriole system out of high school. And Brooks's first uh, year after his Hall of Fame career was 1978, which was my first spring training. And he came in and talked to all the players with Jim Henneman, a longtime Orioles beat writer, just about how to be a professional. Uh, and he talked to us about how important it was to represent your club and your teammates in, a, in, a, in a, the right way and how important it was to represent, to be an Oriole. Uh, it was a really, really big thing at that time and about doing all the little things the right way with Cal Ripken Sr. and Earl Weaver and Ray Miller and people like that and how important it was to interact with the fans and to take the time to get to know fans and sign their autographs because they're the people that pay your salaries and how important it was to interact with the media because they had a job to do to cover your team and you always stay at your locker and you talk to them whether you had the best game of your life or the worst game of your life and Jim you know, reiterated a lot of that stuff. And it was 
such a foundation builder for all of us young players from such a wonderful person. And he was accessible every year in spring training and got to know us and followed how good our years were, or if we had a tough year. Like I remember when I had a really good year in Miami next year, he said, geez, you had a great year last year in Miami. And you know, you guys won the Florida state league. He followed all that. He was Mr. Oriole. And then, you know, as everybody listens, they know my roommate was Cal and uh, his dad was a big influence in his life, but he idolized Brooks. And I believe that that's the reason that Cal always took the time with the fans to be there. And like people said in 1995, he saved baseball by signing all those autographs. That was because he learned from the best how to be, how to be a professional. Learned durability from Brooks too, I would imagine. Exactly. I'm going to play every day. Now, Rob, and again, I'm, uh, I didn't have the luxury of watching Brooks Robinson play only highlights and, uh, nobody plays third base like, like he did. He was not, if you look at him in terms of stature, you guys would be able to speak better to it than, than I would, but he does not look physically like the players do today. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess one question is how on earth did he stay so durable? How was he so nimble and, his arm was, I mean, the arm angles he threw from over there were, were ridiculous with the accuracy and the speed at which he threw it. And also, does his hitting get overshadowed a little bit because of how good he was defensively? Well, he certainly wasn't in the weight room as long as these guys were. Yeah. He was out on the field doing his craft. I'll put it yeah. that way. Uh, I remember we, I read a thing recently, what was it, uh, Earl Weaver said that he said he might have not been the first guy at the ballpark, but he was always the first guy on the field. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he was on the field. That's, you know, another thing that Cal learned from his dad and from Brooks was every day, never saw a guy work as hard as Cal did as his craft as a teammate that I had. You know, just and, – and that's what he learned from being around Brooks and being at the ballpark, I'm sure. And his his service will be this upcoming week. Our, our very own Jim Cott will be speaking, speaking at the service. I had a special relationship as well with Brooks. Um, I, uh, I I shared my Brooks Robinson story, and I'm ruining the punchline by calling it the Brooks Robinson story on Facebook the other day. But I'm not a big autograph person. Um, and uh, when I was in my second year playing professional baseball, my mother called. Of course, you always answer when your mom calls and it was on a rotary phone. It wasn't on a cell phone and uh, asking him for me to send two autographed baseballs uh, to her so she could give them to my aunt, her twin, who was doing some work in Baltimore with a bank. And the president was a baseball fan and his consultant was a baseball fan. And she wanted to just earn favor. She was bragging about her nephew, meaning me. And I had to just make certain that she wanted two autographed baseballs from me when she asked for them. She didn't clarify. So I, I uh, was humble enough to ask if you want me to sign them. Um, so when I sent them to her, she, she called to thank me and said that they're, you know, the president's a big fan of baseball and appreciates it. And his consultant played a little baseball too. And he was going to send her an autograph ball of his own, um, for her just in trade for my two. So, um, she sent me a nice package in the mail. Uh, my mother thanked me, obviously, uh, nice note in the mail and inside the, the, the box that I received was a ball. And I looked at the ball and the signing the ball was Brooks Robinson. So he was the, he was the consultant that played a little. Um, so yeah. And, uh, 
one of the, my, now my aunt had no idea who he was. She's like, was he, was he good? And I was like, yeah, he wasn't bad. Um, I said, <laughs> I laughed. I said, so you traded two Dave D'Agostino autograph baseballs for one Brooks Robinson baseball. And she's like, should I have gotten two? And, uh, and I said, no, 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 we're good. I'll, I'll two for one time here. Next time. You know, baseball history. Yeah. You know, so that's on, my, funny. on my shelf, I have a Brooks Robinson baseball. I had my, I took a picture of it, put on Facebook, autograph, same ball. And then uh, next to his rookie card. And then uh, I only have two other autographs. One is Bo Jackson. Uh, we got to know him when we were in Auburn when I was there. And um, he signed a, a college jersey for my son Tanner. Wow. And um, Pat Riley, both from Schenectady. Um, he, they, they, re, they dedicated the courts to him back. I think I was probably 13. I was involved heavily with the NBA, Pepsi Hotshot. I'd won my third straight championship in New York. And when they dedicated the courts, they thought it'd be a nice promotional spot. Since I was actually getting ready to fly out to Los Angeles, I was getting to shoot at halftime of their game to say, hey, here, let Pat Riley and, and Dave D'Agostino take the you know the first shots on the court. And I was a Celtic fan. So my father grabbed me before and he goes, you do not mention the Celtics. You do. You are a Laker fan until noon. So we got to take that. But my uh, my godfather, who is a senator in New York now, he uh he got him to sign my. I had a rookie card of Pat Riley. He got him to sign it. So those are the only three, three wow. autographs I did do. The, those are good ones. Yeah, I, 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 it's always a nice story. And uh, with Bo Jackson, though, I, I actually went to his auction. Um, he, he does Bo bikes Bama, and uh, he gave the jersey to my son Tanner. And I said, "Well, let me at least you know participate in one of the auction things." And so we did. Uh, we did another like a Jake Arietta had a ball there, so we got it. We gave it away, and he showed me the price on it. He goes, "You better." you better start bidding for those hotel ones over there. I said, why? He goes, cause your wife's going to kick you out of the house when she finds out how much you paid for that Jake area head ball and just gave it away. So, um, <laughs> so we'll, we'll eBay the Bo Jackson Jersey. That'll, that'll set up. Uh, Mark, so, don't you, uh, don't you have a, uh, Pat Riley, uh, dating, uh, oh boy. Story. Uh, now <laughs> I, I, I was Pat Riley's wife is, uh, went to, I went to high school with her. Uh, we were the same age. Uh, actually, took her out once. Uh, she was way over my head. Um, really smart, really pretty, really nice girl. And uh, but she always, I think she always liked basketball players over baseball players because her first big, her first big boyfriend was a was a star basketball player in high school in San Diego. And then uh, you know, years later, she met she met Pat and, you know, they ended up getting married and they, the rest is history. But I always laughed. I was always hoping when I was, to be honest with you, I was hoping they would come to a game when I was coaching with the Marlins. Right. Cause I'm sure she doesn't even know who I am now, but yeah. um, I was hoping they would come because they always used to sit down celebrities and guests right by our dugout, you know, and I was always hoping somebody say, Oh, Pat Riley and his wife are coming to the game today. You know, they never showed up. And uh, I was always there because I was going to go over and say hi to her and stuff. But um, that's my story. I'm sticking with it. Nice. All right. Mark, we'll try to get you in trouble there. No, no, no. I, I, uh, you know, when he had a few beers, it was a little, a little, a little deep. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, the weird thing was, and I will never forget this, when I went to pick her up at her house, and she only lived like a mile from me. And I pulled up in front of the house and I got out and I knocked on the door. And, you know, like when you take a girl out the first time, usually your parents are there, right? They're standing there like, oh, well, nice to meet you or whatever. 
I mean, she came, she opened up, she came out and there was not a parent in sight. I'm going, guys, she's not very proud of me. <laughs> that was my first thought. No, her father was a sniper, if I remember. <laughs> he was up on he was up on the roof in a nest up there waiting yeah, to watch your that's true. behavior. Anyway, I wanted to go. I think it'd be a better transition. To, I'll go right from Brooks to, um, you know, I kind of wanted to give some kudos to some, you know, Hall of Fame and really good players and coaches and stuff like that. And that I had that I felt epitomized uh, character and the type of person you should be as a baseball player or or staff member. And uh, yeah, there's many more than I've got listed here, but I've got a few stories with these. Um, if you guys have any stories about them, just let me know. Um, my first one was uh, Harmon Killebrew. Um, I, I signed with the Twins in 1970 in – in 1971, I was in big league camp with the Twins. They had just won the division the year before. And uh, I, you know, I was, Bert Blyven, Levin and I were the youngest guys in camp. Of course, Bert would already started to establish himself. He was like 19. He was in the big leagues. But we were the young guys on the in spring training. And I was in awe because there were so many tremendous players on that team. Actually, some guys I became friends with later. Um, but Harmon was the most special guy. Um, and he, you know, and I'd watch him and, and, and he'd, you know, if we took a, a one day trip back and forth to, uh, to a team, I'd see him get off the bus and kids would be going crazy. It was like, he was like Babe Ruth, man. They would be surrounding the bus and he, that's the only time I ever heard him raise his voice. He would yell and he'd go, everybody get in line. I will sign everybody's autograph if he get in line. And he'd make them line up. And I said, boy, that's, you know, that's pretty good. And all those kids lined right up. And they were just a massive crowd before he straightened them out. Uh, anyway, we took a, we were taking a road trip um, for a couple of days down to Miami, I think, and somewhere else from Orlando's where we were in spring training. And they used to take two buses. And the one bus was for the guys that played cards and drank beer after the game on the ride to the next city. And, uh, and the other bus was guys that, you know, read books and were more calm. And I had my bag and I'm standing outside the two buses. I'm standing between the two buses and I don't know which bus to get on because I'm a rookie. And when you're a rookie, you don't say nothing. Everybody tells you what to do. And he says, Mark, he put his arm around me. He says, Mark, come on, you're going to come and sit with me on this trip. And he took me and put me on the more calm bus and sat next to me uh, all the way down to like Miami. And I remember him telling me a story. This is the coolest one. He was, he told me, he said, you know, when I was a kid, you know, my mom wanted to keep the grass really nice in the front of the house and everything. And he says, and you know, one day my brothers and I out there playing football or something, and we were running tromping all over the front yard. And my mom came out and yelled at us. And she said like, get off the grass. You're going to kill the grass. And he says, my dad came out behind her and he said in his big billowing voice, he goes, I'm not raising grass. I'm raising boys. Nice. Keep, keep playing. And uh, that was one of the stories he told me, but he was always just such a nice man to me. It was unbelievable. Um, and uh, 
I've told people this before, you know, I met Brooks Robinson, I met Harmon Kilbrew. And, you know, then when I started coaching myself, uh, Jim Tomey and Mike Sweeney, Jim Tomey with the Indians and Mike Sweeney, they epitomize the same attributes as, as Killebrew and Robinson did. Nice people, never talked down to anybody, signed all the autographs. They were the kind of people you should be. You know, uh, then when I started coaching also, I had Doug Jones, who was the same way. And he was a leader in the clubhouse. And when he spoke, when people were getting out of hand or angry or whatever, he could calm the situation. Always a calm guy. And a guy was a tremendous closer. Um, he was another guy with one of those kind of personalities. Um, as I moved along, you know, I got to the Marlins. I never knew Tony Perez. And Tony Perez was a special assistant to the Marlins when I was there. And there's not a better gentleman than I've ever met. Um, he uh, always, again, he always had time for everybody and he never said anything bad about anybody. That's probably what all these guys did. Not only they were humble and normal people and never put themselves on a pedestal, they never spoke badly about anybody. And, they just, and, and always approachable too. You know, they're, uh, you know, they didn't, live in this ivory tower that a lot of hall of fame people do. They were just approachable, you know, uh, Tony, I, I, when I was with the Marlins, that's when David had hired him and he was fabulous. I mean, my gosh, to sit and talk baseball with him was, was incredible. You, you know, know? It, it, it's yeah. These guys, um, they got it. Not only were they great players and every player on their team, respected him. You know, you always hear uh, Johnny Bench or Pete Rose or Joe Morgan. They talk about Tony Perez because Tony Perez was, he, he was something that they couldn't even be, you know, like the, you know, it's hard for players that are stars to be humble. I'm telling you. And, uh, and they got egos and everything, but to not have an ego that you wear on your sleeve and you're humble all the time and you're a great player. That's, that's special. That's special. I had always uh, heard that Al Kaline was like that too, Mark. I, I yeah, think I, I heard that him. too, and I think Stan Musial was. I think Stan Musial was too. I Musial uh, definitely was. Uh, you know, the Cardinals have that rich history, and you know, covering them in Jupiter, which I know you did. You would go up in the press box, and Musial would be up there, and uh, Bobby Knight was friends with Larusa, and. Uh, uh, Bill Parcells would, was a big baseball fan and had a home there in Jupiter. And, you know, you'd go up there and just listen to the stories on a given day when you were up there scouting in spring training and Stan Musial and Bobby Knight and Bill Parcells are sitting at the next table telling stories. You're going, my gosh, what a, what a great day today. Yeah. That, that was when I was with the, the Marlins and, and the Orioles in spring training uh, in Fort Lauderdale, I got to, meet Bill Parcells and yeah. and Knight and all those guys. They were really good guys. They were unbelievable storytellers. And then I, I had the fortune of Sam Perlazzo is really good friends with, with Bill Parcells from his years in Cincinnati. He, he became friends with Bill Parcells and, and uh, I've been out to dinner with, uh, with Sam and, and Bill and, and it's great to hear the football stories and stuff. And then he loves baseball. They all love baseball. They all want to know, you know, like, what do you say to the guy when you go out to the mound and stuff? Here's Hall of Fame football guy asking me what I say to the guy when I, I go out to the mound. You know, Parcells had season tickets in Trenton when the Trenton Thunder 
and I was always in there because it was close to home and I could cover the Eastern League. And I got to know him really well, and he would love to ask what we looked for. And I would be able to pick his mind on what he looked for. You know, I said, what did you see in Lawrence Taylor? He said, you know, he said he had an insatiable motor that never stopped on the field. I mean, he was uh, the the, the most dynamic, you know, know, but I, I do have a funny story. When he came back with the Cowboys towards the end of his coaching career, he was in Jupiter one year, and uh, Jerry Jones had just signed Terrell Owens. <laughs> and I go, uh, I go, hey, Bill. And he knew I was an Eagles fan, and Owens had had a crappy ending in Philly. I go, I guess you're excited to get T.O. And he turned, and he goes, you know, I always used to like you. Not not, not so much right now. I think you're an asshole. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, yeah. Um, what's his name? The famous general manager of uh... – um, was the Packers, uh, gosh, what's his name? Anyway, we were lucky enough to sit down with those guys and eat, and uh, they had some great stories about yeah. football and stuff. And I, I was stupid. I asked Bill one time, I said, hey, can can whiteouts crack back on defensive ends? You know, I said, they, I said, you know, they change so many rules and do stuff. And he goes, oh, yeah, they can. And I said, I never see anybody do that. He goes, can't afford to get those guys hurt, Mark. Right. And I said, oh, I guess that was a stupid question. Yeah. yeah. You know? uh, he was great. But I'm anyway. Let me give you guys a night story quick, a Bob Knight story. When I was uh, – okay. keep it quick. It gives the audience a little little cushion on how coaching has changed. And so I was probably six years old. Dad took me to a night Bobby Knight basketball camp. He was in New York. Um, used to coach at West Point. was at Indiana yeah. at the time. And uh, – he, I got a chance to to meet him, say hello. Very imposing guy, six. I mean, he's all of six five, big big guy, booming voice, eyes look right through you. And he said, "You make sure you're up in front." And these were older kids, um, so first question he asked the camp, he gets all, gets them all in there, and he said, "All right, I want you guys, everybody, raise your hand here if you've ever had a coach you didn't like." So you know, of course, the kids are intimidated. There, he's like, "Come on, raise your hand." We've all had them. So I I didn't raise my hand. I kind of was afraid to do it. All these kids eventually got him to raise their hand. He goes, okay, stand up. If you had a coach you didn't like. So he's got his hand up, so I stand up with the crowd. He goes, I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. We don't like, we don't like all you little son of a bitches either. And uh, that was it. <laughs> That's how he started the camp right there. And I, as a young kid growing up, I always thought, you know, every coach likes you. But as you, as you get older, you learn and you become coaches. Players got to remember that. Um, you know, the way you're describing these, these players as being humble and even the superstars and the guys that were like Perez, a great player. Important for kids to understand that do what your coach asks you to do. Um, do it when they ask you to do it. And do it that way every time. That's exactly how both Knight and Parcells would define discipline. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll let you guys go on with the story. Those are great stories. Uh, no, I, yeah. The, the, the last one I got um, is Hall of Famer Bobby Doerr. Um, Bobby Doerr, of course, that was way before my time, but he was the same time as Ted Williams with the Red Sox. And, uh, and it's really kind of funny the connections uh, with these guys. You know, obviously I didn't know Bobby Doerr, but his brother Hal Doerr coached me in San Diego on an amateur team, and he was really good friends with my father. And my father became friends with Bobby Doerr through his brother. Uh, he used to go fishing up on the Rogue River with Bobby, and uh, they used to tell Ted Williams stories because my dad. And mom grew when they first were married, lived across the street from Ted Williams in San Diego. 
when Ted was in high school. And my dad used to throw batting practice with him. And my mom one time kicked him out of the house. It was before I was born, but my older brother, he was a baby. And Ted was talking so loud while my dad and him were playing cards. My mom told him he had to leave because the baby couldn't sleep. Um, and uh, after that, my mom, my dad became friends with Bobby Doerr. And Bobby Doerr used to, uh, uh, you know, I'd see him around. By that time, he was scouting. He was a special assistant at Toronto. He did a lot of stuff. He was the nicest man. He was just like Brooks, just like Harmon, uh, a gentleman. Uh, he, he, he used to give unbelievable advice. He was as positive as you could be. And then um, I remember that I was coaching in the big leagues and I hadn't seen him in a few years. And we played that Hall of Fame game um, before the Hall of Fame. And uh, all the inductees are there and everything. And we're out there taking batting practice or something, getting ready for the game. And, and Bobby runs out of the stands and runs up and gives me a big hug in the middle of the field and told me how great it was to see me and everything because, you know, I was just a kid. I wasn't a professional player when I first met him. Wow. And uh, so it was kind of cool. And all the players and coaches and stuff said, that was Bobby Doerr. I said, yeah. And he says, you know, Bobby Doerr? And I go, yeah, he's kind of a family friend. Kind of, kind of unbelievable that here I am at the hall of fame coaching the, the, the game and, and there's Bobby, Bobby Doerr there. So that's kind of my story. And I got traded to Toronto at one time in my career as a player and Bobby was there. Uh, he was one of the guys that evaluated me for the trade. It's wow. crazy, crazy. Um, two other people I just wanted to throw out a shout out to, and one was Hank Peters. I mean, I know uh, Will has a background with Hank also, but Hank gave me my first shot as a big league coach. And he was, you know, he always respected other people's opinions and he always got opinions from people he felt should know and trusted him. And during his years as a coach, I mean, as a GM, he was, uh, he, he was great at making really good decisions on players and what to do and staff. And, uh, and, you know, uh, my biggest one is, is that my first year as a big league coach with the Orioles, um, we're playing Toronto and uh, we still hold the record for giving up the most home runs in a game. I was my first year pitching coach and our team gave up 10 home runs in one game. It's a, it's still a record. Uh, it was in the little ballpark and expo uh, exposition park in Toronto. And uh, I mean, it was bad because I had been part of Toronto like a couple of years before that as a player and a lot of the players on Toronto's team were my friends. And like the following day, they were all feeling bad for me because I was the pitching coach, my first pitch, pitching coach job. And some of my best friends hit home runs off our team that day. Um, I was the youngest pitching coach that year in the big leagues. So that added to it. So I go to bed that night after, after, uh, after the 10 home runs, you know, my head spinning. I'm going, oh, man this is not good to be the pitching coach of the team that holds the all time home run record against you in a game. And the first thing in the morning, the phone rings in the hotel and I pick it up and it's Hank Peters, who was the general manager. And he asked me, he says, Mark, are you, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm okay, Hank. And he goes, Hey, that was a tough one last night. Hey, it's only one day. Don't worry about it. And I mean, he, this is the general manager 
that's consoling me as a big league coach on my first big league year. And I'll never forget that. I mentioned it at his funeral. The story um, was hard to hold back some tears telling it, but you know, Hank was a special man to me. Very he well. always treated me unbelievable. And, uh, and those are the kind of people that you want to surround yourself with in baseball. I, I I'll never forget. And I've taught other general managers. I've taught other coaches I said, always give everybody a second chance because that's what Hank Peters did. He said, the worst thing you can do if you're a general manager and you take over a new organization is to fire anybody. You might fire your best guy. And he says, you take over the team, don't do it, do, do much for a year. And he says, and see if how many guys, how, how good they are at their jobs, whether they want to jump on board with your philosophy or not before you make a a decision. Don't make any knee-jerk decisions. So I pass that on to second chances and and the fact that you need to take your time to a lot of people in baseball throughout my career, and it came right from Hank Peters. The other guy is I never worked for him. Uh, his name's Roland Heeman. Um, I left the Orioles. Uh, they wanted to hire me back at one point, uh, and, uh, but Hank Peters had gone to the Cleveland Indians, and uh, I was kind of not liking the direction the Orioles were going in at the time with Hank not being the leader. But Roland Heeman called me up and thanked me for all I did my years in the minor leagues and coaching in the big leagues for the Orioles and how he looked forward to meeting me and how he'd heard nothing but good things about me. And he really appreciated. Then he followed it up with an unbelievable letter to me. And uh, I can't have more respect for a guy than that. You know, he could, I, I left, he could have just said that nah, he's gone, uh, but he took the time. And I've talked to so many people. He's moved from organization to organization. He did and had an impact everywhere he went. What a tremendous guy. He, uh, I, I, I stayed that extra year and got to work for him, Mark. And I got to work for him and Hank and two unbelievably first-class gentlemen. And Roland was David Dombrowski's mentor who, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Phillies today and where what he's done there. But, you know, he carried around three-by-five cards that David carries around with every organization in baseball, people that he knows in the organization, things he knows about their family. He'll ask you, you know, like, he would ask me, you know, how's your, how's your son doing? How's your wife? How's your, you know, you still living in New Jersey? You know, the, these kind of things that, means so much in building relationships. And that's what Roland did. That's why he was so well-loved and so successful in our game. And, uh, you know, we need to get back to that. (laughs) That's all. Yeah. You know, those are the kind of people who were special that uh, they loved the game. They appreciated the game. They honored the game. And it was never about them was never about them. I never heard that you know anybody like in like Hank say like you're making me look bad or yeah. uh, that's not going to help me win no. or whatever. You, you, you know it was us and and he had compassion for everybody. They understood those kind of people understand when people have problems with their families at home. You know, and, uh, and, and they appreciate that. Both of them were great listeners, as David Dombrowski is a great listener. Like so many people in our society are always looking for the next thing they're going to say. They don't listen to what other others are saying. 
And it's so important to be a leader, to be a great leader. That's a good transition, Will. You know, and, and let's yeah. transition to let's transition to the, to the uh, transition to the in, Phillies in the David Dombrowski and what he's done in three years with the Phillies. Um, I was there, you know, covering them for the clincher, and uh, you know, it uh, they're they're peaking again at the right time. David has built a dynamic club, but not only a dynamic club on the field, a dynamic club of quality people that truly love each other. Um, I, uh, Tom McCarthy went into the clubhouse after the game and we all know that alcohol is a truth serum. Um, <laughs> and they were celebrating and it was really neat to watch. I, I had taped it and watched it cause I, I wanted to hear what these guys said. Um, every guy, I love every guy in this clubhouse. I'll go in any foxhole and fight any war with these guys. This is the greatest group of guys I've ever been around. And to watch these grown men celebrating like children, hugging each other, and it, it's a beautiful thing. Nothing analytics can measure, but David Dombrowski knew what that club needed. It needed some leaders. It needed some guys who come and fight the war every day and never get down, and they, they help others be better like Kyle Schwarber does. He helps all those kids be better. Bryce Harper helps those kids. Rayo Muto, they have leaders after leaders. Uh, they are so fun to watch. And then tip your hat to him. He came into an organization that was failing their, in their player development. He waited a year. He hired Don Mattingly's son, Preston. I'll tip my hat to him. Um, they're two low A ball and high A ball clubs. Both went to the playoffs this year. Uh, and they're two minor league players of the year that received the Paul Owens award, who was a long time player development scouting and baseball person in Philadelphia. Uh, the night that they clinched, uh, Johan Rojas, who was a 10,000 Latin American dollar sign, player uh, is hitting 302. He got the game-winning hit in the 11th inning to win the game for them the night they clinched. And Orion Kerkering, who was a 2022 draft in the fifth round, has gone from low A ball in Clearwater to the big leagues and is probably going to be on their roster. He's faced six hitters. He struck out four of them in the big leagues. Uh, Nice job scouting, nice job player development, nice job building a major league team. Tip my hat to their staff. Um, they come to play every day, and they come to kick your ass every day. Um, they're going to be fun to watch again this October. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, it's it's good when you put veteran players with the young players in the and the chemistry's there and the mesh is there. Um, it's the accepting of the young guys accepting advice and it's the the veteran guys willing to give advice. You know, years ago, and, and you know, I'm not trying to date myself, but if you talk to any baseball guy that's been in the game a long time, they'll tell you years ago, the players did a lot of things together. You know, they made, they, they'd say, okay, we're flying in on Sunday after our day game. Um, we're all going here for dinner. Um, be there, rookies included. Uh, sometimes 
during the day in New York City, a veteran player would take a young guy just up and take it over and buy him a suit at a special suit a store where where a lot of the players bought their nice clothes and they'd buy him a they'd buy him a suit and build a relationship with the young player. Um, I don't know how much that happens anymore. I'm sure it still does with some good teams, um, but there are teams that you know I watch firsthand where they you know they didn't do that and. And I've always told people the hardest thing as a young player is to feel like you belong. And it doesn't matter how much a coach or manager tells you you belong. It almost doesn't matter how well you do right away, whether you belong. It's whether the other, your teammates accept you and they tell you that you belong. And that, that's what we're, that's what helps player development and, and, and developing a guy in the big leagues, that's what really helps a guy get over the hump. You know, uh, you know, you just talked about uh, things that are passed down. Like for me, talking earlier about Brooks Robinson, the year after he retires is from his Hall of Fame career, he's passing down wisdom to me and every kid in that room on what it means to be a pro. Um, I don't know how much that's happening. Um, and I'll tell you an anecdotal story, then, Mark, this will appall you. Uh, a friend of mine's son is the clubhouse guy in a low A ball Delmarva in Salisbury, Maryland. And there's so many non baseball people, I hate to say this, um, he works his ass off, the visiting clubhouse guy, because there's things now that Major League Baseball makes you know, bringing uh, th- basically three meals a day, snacks early, a pregame meal and a postgame meal, um, doing all the laundry. He gets, you know, beers for the coaches after the game. There's players and coaches that walk out of there after six days and he's gone and got them beer or a, a bottle of liquor. They don't even give him a tip. You know, these are the things, Mark, that we were taught, you know, we took care of, take care of the clubby. He's taking care of you. He's doing your laundry. He's, he's, you know, getting you a a bag of seeds or a bag of some dip or chew or, or whatever, uh, bubble gum, you know, all the things that are available in the clubhouse, just being respectful of others that these people that have never been in the game, they, they, they don't know what you really need to do. And that's really sad to hear. Well, and, and the other thing is that they don't, when you do have these players around you, some of the older guys and the players don't even know who they are. Right. And they're <laughs> hall of fame players. Right. I mean, are you kidding me? Um, uh, and so, you know, that, that just kind of speaks volumes to kind of where we're at too. Yeah. Well, I think there's a, there's a funny Guinness commercial like that where Joe Montana sitting oh, in the, yeah, bar yeah. the football game and those two millennial kids go, yeah, yeah who do you like? Uh, you're so-and-so. Uh, do you play any sports? Were you a tennis player? <laughs> no. I was one of the five greatest quarterbacks ever played football, you jackass. <laughs> that was, I saw that. I laughed. No, it's like, I laughed. But that's the truth. You know, it, it's, it's it like is the big truth. league, you know, big league camps where they bring the, the, the former Hall of Fame guys and some of the kids don't. Who's that guy over there? Oh, it's Ron Guidry. You know, he's one of the 
best pitchers on the Yankees in the 70s and 80s, you know? Yeah, it's it's. I've told players, I remember when I managed in the minor leagues, you know, when a player would say, God, this guy's unbelievable. He's hitting 350 the first half of the season in double A. This guy's going to be a star. And I said, you know, you might want to hold your horses on that. Right. And they go, what do you mean? And I go, the season is only halfway done. We'll right. see where he's at at the end of the year. And I remember this one particular guy that they all were going crazy over. He got sent back to a ball by the end of the year. And I brought it up to the players. We were playing that team. And I said, Hey, you see that guy you guys all love so much first half. Where is he? You think he's in triple a and they go, Oh, probably. I go, no, they sent him back to double a. He's hit about a buck for the second half of the season. I said, so don't get too excited when somebody's doing well, this season lasts a long time. And, you know, that I'll, I'll, I think we'll only cover one of these things, but I will bridge that to guys that, uh, you know, I actually was lucky enough to, uh, to coach and play with some of these guys that, that never made the all-star team the year or won the they won the Cy Young or the or the MVP, and they never made the All Star team the year they won it. And that's what people don't realize is that some of these guys were just okay, you know, um, and they but they were okay the first half. They took off the second half, and their impact for the whole season was was Hall of Fame. I mean, was uh, Cy Young or MVP in. 2007, Jimmy Rollins did not make the all-star team. Right. Uh, he was MVP. Justin Morneau, MVP in 2006, he didn't make the all-star team. Chipper Jones, MVP in 99, didn't make the all-star team. Juan Gonzalez, 1996. Terry Pendleton, 1991. Robin Yount, 1989. Kurt Gibson, 1988. Wow. Willie Stargell and Keith, they were co-MVPs. Willie Stargell and Keith Hernandez in 79, neither of them made the all-star team. Wow. You know, um, you yeah. know, and then you can go back to Hank Greenberg in 1935, was MVP, never won the all never played in the All-Star. So, you know, John Denny in 1983 didn't make the All-Star team, won the Cy Young Award. Uh Brett Saberhagen did it twice. He didn't make the All-Star team in 80. Or 89, and he won the Cy Young Award. Wow. Greg Maddox in 1993, Roger Clemens in 1987. Wow. Uh, Gaylord Perry in 1978. I got a good story. I was with the I was with Gaylord in San Diego um, on the team, and the All-Star game was in San Diego. And him and I sat up behind home plate and watched the All-Star game, and he played with my son the whole game. Uh-huh. My little boy was like three. And uh, uh, he was a Cy Young Award winner that year and didn't make that All-Star team. Wow. Uh, Jim Palmer, twice, in 73 and 75, didn't make the All-Star team, won the Cy Young. Mike McCormick in 67. Mike Cuellar in 69. Mike Flanagan in 1979. Pete Vukovic in 1982. These are all Cy Young Award winners. Lamar Hoyt in 1983. Doug Drabeck in 1990. None of them made the All-Star team. And then I coached this guy, Pat Hinkin. He won the Cy Young with Toronto in 1996. He didn't make the All-Star team. And Rick Porcello 
in 2016 yeah. didn't make the All-State. These are all guys, and this yeah. is a good argument for guys that get down because they're not having a really good year, you know? Um, hey, it's a full season. You know, uh, you know, I can only go back. I was, uh, what, like 500 or something, and then won like 11 games in a row and became pitcher of the year in AAA. Um, that's what happens. You know, it's a full season, it's and guys have season. to understand that. It's a long-ass grind, and, you know, never get too high, never get too low. Ride it out every day. Keep your emotions level. Enjoy each day that you're doing it. Tomorrow the yeah. sun's going to come up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a good good place to wrap. I know we've got some Hall of Famers we want to talk about in the same capacity that uh, didn't get to to World Series. But uh, what do you think, guys? Good place. Yeah, this is a good yeah. place to stop. We, we'll bring up the other stuff, the notes uh, for the next show. Sounds good. Right. No, it was great. Great anecdotes. I think uh, the, the great part about you guys is the same the same type of people that you're complimenting uh, you to ex- exemplify that as well humble um just p- pure and, and my, my wife will calls you the the nicest guy on facebook you like everything she puts out there so um, <laughs> uh, you like all my stuff too i just make well, it special with that so facebook's so damn ugly you know the, let's try to be nice to each other yeah. you know likes everything i put out there so i appreciate that it makes the house kind of even for me so but uh, to our audience, thank you guys for your support. We're the newest streaming podcast network on iHeartRadio, 50,000 plus. We will be rewarding you guys. We'll be up this weekend. All of our affiliates, businesses that support what we're doing, um, are, they came from you guys, the audience. You let me know what money you're spending on products, sporting products. We partnered with them. You'll now get discounts and all that stuff. And then hopefully with the discounts, we can start rewarding our great podcast hosts like we have here on A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. This is episode 300, so a monumental episode for you guys. And, uh, you know, great stories about Brooks uh, Robinson and Harmon Killebrew. Ironically, Jim Cott mentioned him as a Brooks Robinson type of character as well. So uh, great analogy there. But, guys, thanks so much for sharing your expertise and your stories and and, uh, your intimate knowledge of both baseball and people in it. Um, I think our audience is just lucky to have you, too. So thanks so much, and you you guys have a great weekend. Yeah, great job, guys. Enjoy it. Great weekend. I guess Jim Cox should have been put in that group too. That's right. He's with, uh, with Roman Kilber. He's exactly the same as other the guys. Yeah. And here's our Kenny Rogers to end us here. I love that. So still you can hear the sound of baseball falls to the ground. Now the little boy doesn't say a word. Picks up his ball. He is undeterred.